At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 499th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is creating a circular food system in the Arctic extreme. We're talking with Benjamin Vidmar about growing food at the pole. Benjamin is an echo chef and foodie from Cleveland, Ohio, with over 20 years of international experience. After working for 18 years as a professional chef in the United States, Asia, and Scandinavia, he visited Svalbard, Norway, for the first time in 2007 and instantly fell in love with the Arctic. After several years as the head chef at the Svalbard pub, he felt called to interrupt and innovate a food system that simply wasn't working. In 2015, he created Polar Permaculture to help restore sustainable systems in the northernmost town of the world. Today, Polar Permaculture produces farm-fresh, nutritious vegetables, microgreens, and sprouts for the local community with a sustainable circular system in mind. Their intent is to produce enough food for the entire town and process all of the community's organic and biological waste. Welcome to the show today, Ben. Are you ready to rock? Oh, yeah. Let's do this. I'm ready to rock. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yes. So everything was correct, and i am just been here. I fell in love with the place. Uh, I really tried to leave a few times, and I just can't get away from Like, I can never get enough of this place. And I always come back, and I have my family here, and it's a very special place. So we really love it here. When it's a small town, Svalbard's a small town. Uh, Svalbard is actually the island group, and the ah. town the town is Longyearbyen. So the Norwegian settlement is Longyearbyen, and Svalbard is actually founded by a treaty that was signed after the war in 1920. The treaty went into effect in 1925, so every country that signed the treaty has equal rights here. So it's a treaty land, basically. Oh, wow. Nor- and according to the treaty, Norway has the sovereignty. So it's Norway, but... They have to honor everyone who signed the treaty and allow them access to the place. So it's a very, very special place, and not many people know about it. Wow. All right. Well, so tell us about it. First of all, what possessed you to move to the northernmost city in the world? Adventure. I mean, I really wanted to, you know, just travel the world. I love to travel. I love to food. I love to cook. I love to eat. And it was just natural. I, I graduated from the Le Cordon Bleu cooking school in Pittsburgh. And I think it was 2000 and oh, 1990, 1998, I graduated, 1999. Uh-huh. And then I went back to Cleveland. I worked. I was working as an overnight baker at a bakery. And I was also cooking at a private club during the daytime. And I like what, you know, my life in, as a, in the States was always like a lot of work. It was really, really hard work. I, a normal day for me was 
you know, 20 hours of work, two jobs. Wow. And I was, if I was lucky, I would only have to work one job. And then if I was really, really lucky, I would have free from every job. But that was very rare. So what I would do is between my jobs, instead of like driving all the way back home, I would just sit in my car and I would read like these permaculture magazines and I would read like these backwoods homes magazines and I would read like homesteading. And for me, it was like a a fairy tale. I didn't understand how could somebody just unplug and go live like this. And I was just so fascinated by it. And I always was dreaming to like go do a course in Brazil, like a two-week permaculture design course or to do these type of things. But I never really thought it was possible because I was working so hard. I was thinking, how, how is it possible to do this? Right. And then after I moved, I traveled and moved from, when I finished school in 2005, I moved to Kota Kinabalu in Sabah, Malaysian Borneo. I was teaching cooking at a cooking school there working in a restaurant and teaching English. I did that for like six months. It was really beautiful. And like, I actually never really liked the, the winter. So that's why I wanted to leave Ohio. I, I like the sun. I like the warm weather, which is very <laughs> ironic. Exactly. <laughs> very ironic. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but that's how it goes. And so I moved to, to Asia. I was like living there and working. And then I saw a job that said work in Antarctica. So it was a Canadian company. They were hiring uh, international staff to work on expedition cruise ships. So they hired me as a head chef on one of their ships. They sent me to Ushuaia and uh, Argentina. And then I joined the ship and I sailed for five months from to, from Ushuaia to Antarctica. It's like a 10-day trip. I did that for five months. After that season, they invited me to come to the Canadian Arctic and they had a ship that went to the Scandinavian Arctic. So they sent me here to Svalbard and that's how I actually found out about the place. And then the summer season here is like two months. So I came here, I worked two months on the ship and then I went back to Antarctica, worked another five months. And then when I came here the next time, I saw a Radisson Hotel and I said, they must need chefs. So I went inside, I said, do you need chefs? (laughs) And I'll bet they were all over it. The manager came out straight away, he interviewed me and he said, you're hired. So I was like, oh, that was pretty easy. So then I went back to Antarctica and then in 2008, I started working at the Radisson Hotel here in, in Longyearbyen. So. Wow. That is quite the adventure. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations on that. I just got lucky. I just got very lucky. I yeah. Mean, that's all it was. It's a lot of luck. But I had to be in the right place at the right time. So, you know, it just kind of worked out like that. I'm a believer that you make your own luck. And that's it's, true. And it sounds <laughs> like you went... Uh, way back to when you were just graduating from from school, you kept wonder. You were reading the magazines in the in the car and wondering how can I, you know, how can I do this? Whether you were saying that to yourself or not, that's what was going on in your head. It's like, how can I do this? I'll bet. Exactly. You know, I couldn't believe it, but uh, like I planted the seeds a long time ago. I planted those seeds. Like I want to grow my own food. I want to be in, you know, self sufficient, and I want to live off grid and all of this stuff. And like, I wanted it, but I just didn't know how to do it. So I think that was the big thing. Yeah. All right. And you mentioned the word permaculture. Have you done a permaculture design course? Yeah, I actually took my permaculture design course with Ben Falk at his place, Whole Systems Design in Vermont. So it was a really nice course. Wow. I flew there. I mean, it was, uh, it's, it's a bit you know, more expensive than some of the other courses, but I think it was worth it. So we, I went there for two weeks, do the camping thing. We did our project. And then I left there and I came back to Svalbard after that. So. Wow, so you were living in Svalbard. You went and did your permaculture course and then went back. Yeah, so what happened for me was like, since I've been living in Svalbard, like everything that I ever wanted to do has been possible. 
So it's like when I was living oh. in, in Florida, in the States, I never had time to do anything, you know? And then when I came here, it was like I finally had time to do all of these things that I only dreamed about doing. And it's this environment here. It's very nurturing. It's a very creative environment. They, they, you can try things like the people. There's a high turnover of the population. So people are always coming and going. And there's a lot of ideas and a lot of energy. So it's like the place that is welcoming for this type of thing. And they needed it. We need it here because there's yeah. nothing, there's nothing, 100% of our food is imported. And also Svalbard Longyearbyen has one of the highest CO2 outputs per capita in the world. Because what? we burn, we burn coal. We, uh. we 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 mine coal, and we also burn coal for energy and for hot water. And we ship everything up. And not only that, but we also ship all of our garbage back to Norway. So it's a long line. And then we also there's only one only way to come here is by flight. So there's no ship access. There's no no other way. There's no train. There's no bus. You can only fly here. So if if Svalbard was his own country, it would have like one of the highest CO two outputs, like Qatar or any of these Emirate countries. Yeah. But because Nor because Norway has such clean energy, they can cover it, and it's not as it doesn't seem as bad as it actually is because they can they can balance it out. So got it. And uh, you know, I always ask my permaculture design graduates, PDC graduates, to define permaculture. Can you do that for me? For me, permaculture is. I really respect the ethics. That's why I named my company Polar Permaculture because I really believe in the earth care, people care, and the, you know the better use, fair share of the resources. And I, I feel that if I operate, if I operate my business according to that, then I then things should work out well. But I think you have to use the principles and and just design systems that work. And I, I think if it's something doesn't work, then we shouldn't use it, no matter what's it, what it's called, whether you call it permaculture or you call it whatever. If it doesn't work. Don't use it. Don't so use it. Yeah. I, I don't. I don't. I don't blindly follow anything. I see what works, and I benchmark it, and I try to apply it for my situation. And if it works here, then I keep it. And if it doesn't work, I don't use it. So I try not to get caught up in labels. But yeah. you know, that's that's just how I do it. Perfect. Nice. Love it. So you have a pretty lofty goal to grow <laughs> enough food for a town of. 2,800 people. By the way, I have the same goal for Phoenix, but there's 4.4 million people here. <laughs> well, that's okay. Step by step, right? Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. How do you eat an elephant, right? How do you eat an elephant? Piece by piece. Yep. So you'll, you'll get there, you know? Yeah, exactly. So tell me about that because you have some really cool ideas around zero waste and growing food. Tell me about from a macro perspective, tell me about the systems that you're putting in place and the ones that you see going in place. Then we'll talk about actually how you're growing food. So what we did is because I actually get support from what's what's unique about this place is that I can connect all of the dots here because it's very transparent. It's an island. It's a treaty land. So it's a very unique situation. And I don't think you will find this type of situation in many other places. So it's like the perfect storm in a way where I can do this project and everybody supports it. So I work with the politicians. I work with the researchers. I work with the university. I'm trying to bring everybody together because I feel like that's part of the challenge is making everyone work and everyone on the same page and work together, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. So, so what I do is like we have money available for the Svalbard, from the Svalbard Environmental Fund. And this money is available for projects. So when people fly down from this island, there's a tax of 150 kroners that's put inside the ticket. And then this money is available for people to do projects here. So I applied for some of this money to build the greenhouse. They gave me the money and I built the greenhouse. 
And then I also applied for some of this money to do a feasibility study. So we got the money. I worked with a German company and we got the feasibility study done. So now since we have this study, people are taking it more seriously and they want to work with us more. So I'm really trying to just put all of the pieces together because Longyearbyen in Svalbard is, is a good example for, for the world. And this will be the perfect place to make like a living lab where you can bring all of these people with these new technologies, new ideas, and just put them here and just let them do it and let them go. So that's what they want to move towards. And like this polar permaculture was kind of the project that started all of that. So now only they see it and now they see the benefit and now they want to push more money to these type of projects. Oh, nice. So it would be like it would be like a hub. It would be like a green hub near the North Pole. And then there's also a Norwegian company called uh, Jotun. There's like paints, like painting company, J-O-T-U-N. Uh-huh. So this is a Norwegian company, but they have a testing station here. And they test out a lot of their paints. And they figure if it can work here, it can work pretty much in any other place in the world. So that's kind of how I see polar permaculture. If we can do this here, then it's a good chance that it can work in many other places around the world. So that's why I don't see, I'm not just focused on just setting up the system here. We want to set up the system. We want to try to make it very zero waste and very complete. And then we want to export it to other places around the world who also need, who have similar situations or who need help in in different areas. So that's the plan. Wow. And what do these systems look like? Well, now one system, for example, we grow microgreens because the hotels and the restaurants here, we have a lot of restaurants. I mean, we, it's a tourism is the main industry here. So we have a lot of hotels and restaurants and they want microgreens. They want herbs. They want leafy greens. And normally all of that stuff comes up by flight. But because of the transport, a lot of it gets wasted and there's like not the, the same quality as what we can grow here. So according to the feasibility study, it's, it's smartest for us to focus on these leafy greens, herbs and microgreens because they come by flight. So they have the biggest expense and to grow it here would really save a lot of money. And also it's much better quality. So we have a system like in our our grow room, basically, where we grow microgreens, we grow herbs, we grow different things. We deliver to the restaurants, the hotels, and then we collect back what they don't use. The organic material that they don't use, we collect it back and then we compost it with worms and we compost it with different other different ways, mainly with worms, composting worms. What the composting worms produce, we use that out in our dome. So the dome operates in the summer, and then that's soil-based. So right. we use soil out there, and then indoors is more hydroponic-based. So what I, what I, how I like to see it is like we want to combine, because I think a biggest challenge is that most people focus on one or, one or two areas, and right. they just only focus on that. So this is about combining as many areas as possible to create as many circles as possible to, to see how far we can go down the rabbit hole to see, you know, if there's some other ways to connect things. So that's what's different about here. We want to combine as many things as possible and to get as many connections as possible. When if one that of the, makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, it makes sense. One of the things that I talk about a lot is collaboration. I happen to believe that competition is one of the things that's killing us on the planet. And the mm-hmm. way we're going to get out of this is by cooperating. And it sounds like there's a lot of cooperation and collaboration going on there. Because it's, it's like more transparent. It's, it's like uh, easier to do here because everything is flat. The whole structure is flat. So that's why I'm able to do it. So that's why I'm really pushing to make it work here because then if we can get all of the, if we can make the recipe here, then it will be easier to export it and send it out and help other people to reach the same, you know, goal. So yeah. that's the plan. Now you're not when you say recipe you're not talking food you're talking a recipe for a system. 
system and for food for for everything because we we like have a we our plan is to have a zero waste restaurant and then we want to grow the food here we want to send the food to the restaurant we want to com- you know compost the waste we want to make it as zero waste as possible so we start with the restaurant and then we scale it up to the city mm-hmm. because it's hard it's hard to tackle the whole city at once so we have to start somewhere so for us it's important that we start with the zero waste restaurant concept make that work and then we try to scale that up to the city level and make a zero waste city here wow so let's talk about what that actually means a zero waste restaurant. What does the system, the flow-through system, look like for a zero-waste restaurant? Then you definitely have to have a place where the food is growing. You definitely have to have a place where the food goes to, where you make the best use of it. And then you need a place where it goes after that, where the waste from that goes to, to to create something else. So it's basically just making a circle where things flow into each of the resources flow instead of linear where you just buy and throw it away. So that's what we want to do. We want to try to use resources as much as possible before we let it out of the system. Yeah. So the food comes into the front door of the restaurant from wherever it comes from. You, If, if it's not even growing, like some of it will be growing in the restaurant itself. Like we will have food, some food growing there. Some food will come from a little bit further down the road. But like the whole point is to connect the people back to the food and also take responsibility for the waste. Yeah. And that's a big piece of it is the waste. So you, the food comes in the front door. Some of it's grown on site. You prepare it. You have some food waste. That food waste goes into compost worm, compost bins, worm bins to make soil. Worm bins, or it could be a digester to make, you know, methane, biogas, mm-hmm. or, you know, so the, it's, the, it's many different steps. But the thing is, we, we need to start with something. So yeah. like, of course, it, it can go and go and go. You can turn, you can make algae production and use the algae. There's so many levels to it. So that's why I don't, I don't want to make it too complicated. So we, we just want to get a good start. Well, first, now we want to increase our production of food and we want to increase our composting capacity because now we don't have, a, it's a very small operation. So we want to scale that up. And the first step for us is to produce, because in this study, they can concluded that there's 50%, they calculated 50%. Uh, 50 grams of greens per day for locals and 25 grams of greens per day for tourists. And they calculated it was like 4,000-something kilos of food. And they said, Ben, you should focus on growing 10% of this. You need this much space. It's going to cost this much money. And then they said, and then after you get 10%, try to scale up to 50%. You need this much space. You need this much money. So now we just have to take it step by step. Because before, I tried to do too many things at one time. And it's like, you know, it's, it's overwhelming. So you have to do piece by piece and just take the small battles, you know, before we can win the war. So now my my next battle is to raise the money to be able to grow 10% of the greens that we need here in town. And then I also, at the same time, want to set up a system that will compost the waste from that because I'm taking responsibility for my waste. I can't take responsibility for the whole town's waste yes. because they can they can dump it into the sea for free. So they don't understand why they should pay someone to process that when you can dump it for free into the sea. So I can't, I, can't, I can't waste time fighting that battle. I have to just, I take responsibility for the waste that I produce. Well, then what'll happen, what'll happen is that they'll see what you're doing with it. And it's like, oh, that's cool. And then other people will get on board. And exactly. yeah, that's, that's what I'm hoping, you know? So that's why now I just do, I just focus on what I can do. I, I don't worry about, you know, everything else. Amen and to like, that. 
So that's the thing, because before I get so frustrated, want to do everything, and, mm -hmm. you know, I don't understand why people don't understand. Like, it's easy for me to understand, but it, everyone else is quite, quite complicated. So, yeah, I just take it step by step. Tell me about your farm. What does it look like? What are you growing? How big is your greenhouse? Just give me a sense of it. Yeah, I don't even know if you would call it a farm. It's more like a garden. We, we like to call it the polar garden. And basically, I started indoors, and I, I get so confused when I switch between meters and feet. It was like the indoors operation is maybe 50 square meters. It's very small. And then the, so like the dome. 150, 160 square feet. Yes. And then the dome is like, what is it? 100 square meters. The dome is like 100 square meters. Mm -hmm. And then um, that's outdoors. So it's basically, and then we have this this other place that we share with the grocery, because we have like one grocery store here. There's like one of everything, one post office, one school, one grocery store. So the grocery store, they really want us to, to produce more food. So they've been giving us like space for free for the last eight months to try to grow basil and different herbs. Wow. So we share, we use like, a, they have like this container. It's like a small container. So we've been growing in there. So that's like where we grow the herbs inside of a container. And that's mostly, that's just like running off LED lights. Mm -hmm. And that's that's all year round. And then we have the microgreens. It's also indoor and it's hydroponic. And we use LED lights for that. And then the dome is only in the summer. So we use that from May until October. And it's we like this year it was too cold even. We couldn't start in there until like June. So I would say June until October because the sun starts to go away and then the sun goes away at October. So then we go into the polar night oh, and then right. we have th we have three months of uh, 24 hours of darkness. And then after that, we switch back to indoors. But for me, I really like to take advantage of the sun when we have it. And that's why for this study, I stress that I have to use the sun when we have the sun, because it'd be so easy just to set up shipping containers, run the lights all day and say, oh, yeah, we're growing food. But I didn't want that. I wanted to really work with the seasons and really grow food with the sun when we have it. So this company, they, EBF, they designed this hybrid system where it has a like vertical growing, but it also has this reflective material on this flap that opens during the summer, reflects the light in, and then we also can close it to give the plants a rest. And then when we go into polar night, we can use lights. So it's a system that was specially designed for this type of environment, and we want to try it here, and then we want to see if there's other places that can also use it or use some type of modification of it. So there's a lot of technology that's coming out of this, and I think it's going to be good for, for many other people who are in similar situations, for example. Yeah. Wow, and you've put a lot of thought into this. Yeah, I had to. I mean, because it's like... It, it was combining, like I said, it was combining all of the systems because I know there's other people in Scandinavia, there's other companies in Norway that just focus on growing microgreens. But then I could tell them, I say, okay, you grow microgreens, but what do you do with all of the waste, you know? Because when you grow in the cellulose paper and then normally this ends up in the garbage. And I said, well, what do you do with this? Because for me, it was really important to take responsibility for the waste. Yes. And that's why I really want to make this zero waste. And that's why I really want to focus on that because, I mean, if we don't, then we're just going to have more problems later. So I, I'm a, actually a believer that companies that produce anything that gets thrown away, they need to be responsible for that. So if you, go into a, if you go into a fast food restaurant and they give you fast food packaging, they should be responsible for the management of that waste stream. Just look at the fishing industry. Most of the plastic is coming from their nets and look, it damages a lot of other things and they just, who pays for it? The taxpayers have to pay for it. Yeah. So if, if companies took responsibility for their waste, I think things would be so much different. Amen to that. I've been saying that a lot today. <laughs> 
<laughs> so how does your family participate with all this? Well, my son, he's the, him and I are the main ones working. My wife, she's kind of behind the scenes. She's really helping with the finance, financial side. I have a mentor. She's a Norwegian lady, Haga. She's really been helping me to get the business side of it together. And yeah, we just, we just all work together. Like I mainly focus because a big part of the business is tours. I do a lot of tourism. Oh, so I have nice. people come and visit. Yep. I do cooking. I do like a cooking class. I do a city tour. So the, the main income comes from tours. The, after that, then the, the growing, the, what we sell, the produce, produce is the next income. But I make more money from the tours actually now than I do from, the, from selling greens. I'm hoping to scale everything up and make it bigger so we make more from everything because we really need to earn money to keep it going. You know, it's also no point to, to do it if you if you if it's not it's not sustainable if you're not earning money. Yeah, it's basically what I've learned the hard way, you know. Yeah, so, exactly. Exactly. I was going to ask you if you charged for the tours. Oh, yeah. We charge for tours. We have a two-hour tour. We have a four-hour tour. And the two-hour tour is like a city tour. And I kind of explain it from kind of a permaculture, kind of a, you know, growing perspective. And then after that, for the four-hour tour, we do two hours of cooking. So it combines, the four-hour tour combines a city tour plus a cooking tour. And then we eat together and we, you know, share stories together. It's really amazing. And you, if you're interested in any of that, you can go to TripAdvisor, find us on TripAdvisor because all of the reviews are there and it's some really beautiful reviews. And it's like a very subtle way to get people to think differently. Like you can beat people in the head and say, you, you know, climate change, whatever, you have to do something different. Or you can come have one of my tours and we cook together and we go to the greenhouse and we pick some salad that was just you know, grown just there and we eat together. And I mean, they, they pick it up much quicker when I do it that way than oh, if yeah. I just yell at, yell at them and say, need to change, you need, don't, you know. So yep. I, like, I'm trying to find very creative ways to get people to understand. And that this is what I found works best. Yeah, yeah, wow. Cool, That's, uh, that is epic what you're doing. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for, for letting me share my story. Yeah. So you have a pretty unique way that you touch people around the world and they can support your mission. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So what we do is we would like to send some postcards from Longyearbyen to pretty much anyone you want to send a postcard to in the world and we can customize it with your message and the address that you choose. And like, I think it's a good way to help spread the message because then you see this picture of our dome on the postcard and we have our website there and then people can go and they can learn about the story and it helps to inspire people and if you just google polar permaculture you will see so many documentaries so many articles so much press about what we're doing and i think it's important because we're we're like we're, we're helping people to 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 do things not just you know talk about doing things, things but to actually action to take <laughs> yeah. action we we inspire them to take action. But yeah, that's kind of what the postcards can help to convey. Great. And where can people find that? Because I'm, I'm, I'm in. I want one. Yeah, that's on our website, polarpermaculture.com. So if you just go there, you will see the link for the postcards. And we can, you know, you fill it out and just let us know what you want to put on there. And we will send it out straight away. Nice. We will take, also take a picture and send you the picture so you can see. Beautiful. I'm going to have one sent to me. Are you kidding? <laughs> oh, fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. So I'm going to shift on you. And I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you learned from it. I think the whole process has been one big failure. And I just failed so many times that I eventually got it right. And I think also what was, you know, the biggest thing for me to learn was that about the balance between 
doing the right thing and earning money. And it's, it's, it's important to have the right balance. So for me, I really, really just wanted to do the right thing at all costs, but it's not sustainable. And like, you know, it's been really hard and I've been negative with the, you know, finances and a, a near bankruptcy. And it's just been really, really difficult. And then I have to balance it out and just, you know, be smarter about the business side. And now we're positive and, uh, you know, there's money in the bank and tours are booked and things are growing. And when you, when we have it, then we can do more. If we don't have it, there's nothing we can do. So it's, it really is like the, the cash is like the oxygen and it, we, we need it to breathe in order to grow the business. And when the business grows, then it can do more, you know, good with other things. So yeah. that's, well, that was a, a really hard lesson for me to learn. Wow. One, one of the things that I have found is that people are really, 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 I know I said that a lot, interested <laughs> in touring stuff. They want to know about this stuff. They want to learn about it. And engaging people, and I'm talking to everybody out there listening, when you engage people at a level of showing them how rather than telling them how, first of all, it makes a bigger difference for them. Secondly, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's an income stream. You know, we do tours here at the Urban Farm. Now I do tours for free, but I ask for a donation. You know, and people leave money behind in the donation jar that helps us do the work that we do. So, and they call it ecotourism. It's it's huge, and yay on you for doing it. Yes, it's very important. And you know, also what I think it is is that we lack stories about this, about how to move forward. And this is just one story that people can tell. Oh, have you heard of the guy who's growing food near the North Pole? So, like, we need more of these stories because we're that's how we understand things it's with stories and if we don't have any stories about you know we all we know everything is going to hell but how do we move past this there's no one speaking about that everyone keeps saying we only have 10 years to live we have five years to live one year to live okay so what do we do like everyone's paralyzed with fear yep so i think it's important it's important that we we have these stories to share so that people can feel you know hope that's what's important that's what's missing yeah oh i so agree and that, you know, most of the stuff that we do, actually, I'm going to say all of the stuff that we do here at the Urban Farm, all of our programs are fun. They're happy. They're positive moving forward. They're, oh my gosh, you can do this. And, and I didn't start it out that way, but so much of what we've created here, and it sounds to me like so much of what you're creating, it's just, it's logical. It's once it's set up, it's easy and people just want to learn about it. I agree. That's that was, but it took a long time to figure it out. It took a lot of failures for me, <laughs> right? for me to figure it out to get the right recipe. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. And your biggest success? I think the biggest success would be getting this feasibility study done because that just kind of like everyone had to take it seriously after we had this study. Mm. It was like before that, I knew everything that was in a study. I knew it already, but right. when we had this company validate it and verify it and then present it, we brought the guy, Franz, his name was Franz, he came here to Longyear B and we did a presentation, we invited the whole town, he shared his findings. When we did that, that was like, after that, there was no more doubt. Everyone was like, okay, this is it, we need to do something. And then it got very serious and the council, the city council reached out and said, okay, we want to help you find land. And because now we only have a temporary location. So then after that, they said, okay, Okay, we want to help you find a permanent location. And then there's another big company here who kind of owns the land. And they reached out and said, okay, we want to partner with you. So like after that, everything got serious. <laughs> so I would, think, I, would, I would think that was the biggest. Wow. You said success, right? Yeah. Nice. That was the big, yeah. yeah. Wow. 
Well, you know, I think that's the big dream for those of us that work in the realm of permaculture is how do we create regenerative systems, systems that recreate themselves. I agree. And you're doing that. And I also think that I don't, I mean, I agree that it's the biggest challenge, but I don't think it's like us just, we we know we can create the systems, but to be supported by the politicians, to be supported yes. by the scientists, to get the, to get all of these communities behind us is the challenge because we know we can do it. But when you have all of these people behind you, it's a different story. So that's kind of like what's happening now. All of these, I'm bringing all together these different sections, these different areas i'm bringing them all together and now they all are behind it and they all want it so that's like that's why i say this is the perfect place that this should happen because then once we show an example of how everyone here can work together and make this happen then that's just for other everyone else to say well if they can do it there then why don't we try to do it here that's right exactly exactly so it's it's not so much of course we know a lot of these things work but it's the same like me. I knew it works, but when we got the validation from this company in the form of a feasibility study, then that went to the scientific community, and then they can debate. You know what I mean? So it took oh, yeah. it to another level. So that's the thing is I think we we can't just keep it like in our own little community. We have to reach out. We can't just sit back and watch. We have to go out. We have to, you know, run after the people and show them and, and get them to, to take part and to move and to take action. And that's what I've been trying to do. Oh, I'm going to say it again. Amen. <laughs> so what drives you? I think what drives me is just to to make this work because I know that this is what the town needs. I know that this is what the world needs and we need a good story. And I, I'm just driven by the fact that I want to create this story here that can be told all around the world to inspire others to to find their own way because what i'm doing is just my way it's not going to work for everybody else but this hopefully there's something in this story that will spark something in someone else that can help them to find their own way to do it so that's that's basically what i'm trying to do because now i see that many people are watching me and many people are are rooting for me and and many people want me to you know even when i i wanted to give up so many times like I, I wanted to give up so much because it was so difficult. I didn't understand how am I supposed to do this? But, you know, then I just take one step at a time and it starts to make sense. And I keep getting support from people from all over the world. There's people from Greenland, from Canada, from all parts of the Arctic, some lady from Siberia. There's people from all over the world who contact me and say, Ben, keep going. Don't give up. Keep going. So then when these people contact me, it's not it's not about me anymore. It's about like something bigger. So, yeah. And I'm going to do a shout out right now to everybody listening. Go to polarpermaculture. Is it polarpermaculture.com, right? Yes, it is. Yes. Go to polarpermaculture.com, buy yourself a postcard, send Ben an email, tell him to keep what he's doing, what he's doing, do shout outs to him, share this with your friends, because I've been studying the notion of regenerative design for decades. And what you're up to is an experiment that can work. Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind, very nice to hear. And it makes me feel better to know that I'm on the right track. Yeah. You know, for a long time, I didn't know which way to go, but right. now I feel like I'm on the right track. So. Well, and I'm going to be watching you, man. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> we should uh, we should check in about once a year on the podcast and retell that's, your story. That's fine with me. I, can, I, I agree. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Uh, the book that I would recommend is called Thick Face, Black Heart. It's by Chen Ning Chu. And it's just like, it's, it's, so, it's, about, it's like a warrior philosophy for conquering the challenges of business and life. And mm. I, really, I really learned so many lessons. And like, 
before I read that book, I was always too nice. And it's not good to be nice. You have to, you know, stand up for yourself and you have to, you can't be afraid yeah. to make your own path, you know? And before that, I would just go with the flow and, you know, but no, it doesn't work like that. And I, I didn't get this far by just going with the flow. So it took a lot of guts to go against the crowd. And that's yeah, what thanks. I did. And yeah, and that's the book that I would recommend. Yeah. Excellent. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Just follow your dreams. Like this all started as a dream for me, just, you know, having the, I didn't start this to save the world. I didn't start this to make longer being sustainable. I only started this project because I wanted to have the freshest food possible. Like that's the reason why I started it. And, you know, all of this came out of that and it was just a dream. And I just kept going after, kept chasing it. So my advice is keep following your dreams. Don't give up on them, no matter how stupid they sound to others. They just don't understand yet. Like, you know, this was just ahead of its time. It took, I was on this like 10 years ago, and now they're just catching up to it. So everything just takes time. Keep following your dreams. There you go. Don't give up. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Ben. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure, Greg. Thank you. Absolutely. And how can our listeners find you again? Uh, yeah, you can just reach out to polarpermaculture.com. You can find all the information there, the email, the phone numbers, the address. Everything is there. Or you can find us on Facebook, Polar Permaculture. Uh, just Google Polar Permaculture and everything will come up. So, yeah, just find us. That's excellent. the important thing. Yeah, excellent. And we also want to thank you. We have five of your postcards from Svalbard that need to be personalized and sent out to a few lucky listeners. If you'd like a chance to win one of these postcards, email us at podcast at urbanfarm.org with the subject, I want to say hi from the North Pole. Make sure to provide us with your name and mailing address. We will pick five random emails from the first 50 people who respond in the next 45 days. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash polar perm. The Urban Farm Podcast is brought to you by our amazing Urban Farm team, producer Janice Norton, editor Ken Kingsborough, associate Katie Fiore, and hosted by me, Farmer Greg. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever your podcasts are found. And while you're at it, please rate, review, and share it with your friends. You can also visit urbanfarmpodcast.org to find our full list of over 500 shows and the Urban Farm blog. Plus, visit urbanfarm.org to find links to our webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org 
forward slash feed the leaves.